So once again, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3, and uh, come the time we'll read the whole chapter together down to verse 15. But I just want to to say, uh, by way of introduction to today's service, that, uh, and I'm sure you all know, certainly if the older ones amongst you don't know, the younger ones will, that Christmas Day this year is on a Sunday. And God willing, we shall have our service just the same. So although we're going to be in the holiday time, we'll be having our services over Christmas and New Year uh, just in the same pattern as we do for the rest of the year. And even although it falls on a Sunday, we'll we'll still be here to, to worship. But having completed our series in Mark's Gospel, I plan to use the next few weeks to anticipate the incarnation of Christ uh, by looking at the way that the Old Testament saints looked forward to the Saviour's coming. And uh, uh, my calculations are right. I think we've got four Sundays Uh, And then the fourth Sunday will be our Christmas Day service. So what I'm going to do is I thought we would look first at the promise of Christ's coming. And that's going to be the title of today's service. And then next week we'll look at the prophecies in the Old Testament concerning Christ's coming. And then in the uh, penultimate week, the preparation for Christ's coming. Uh, We might refer to the book of Malachi and the anticipation of John the Baptist and the the coming of the angel uh, to Mary on on that occasion. And then the presence of Christ come will be our title for our Christmas Day service. So uh, really just a, a little bit Again, of of, of uh, forewarning, just to say that this will be my pattern over the next few weeks. And by way of introduction to all of these studies concerning Christ's incarnation, I would like us to note that of all the triumphs that we might attribute to the coming of our Saviour into this world, and there are many that we could list. Now, of course, that the world is, is about the business of Christmas just now. And we're not going to get bound up and wound up on that too much at all, I trust. But we will remember that it's about the triumphs of Christ's coming that the believer concentrates with the eye of faith. And while we don't uh, pass over or, or deal lightly with the event and the occasion, yet it is with an eye to see what was fulfilled by the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the believer finds greatest comfort and the truest manifestation of peace on earth. So when we think about the triumphs of Christ's incarnation, we could look uh, at, at many and perhaps no better than uh, what John, the, the Apostle John, the, the beloved Apostle, tells us in the third chapter of the first epistle, uh, where he tells us that 
there were two principal reasons for the coming, for the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. He tells us the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world to take away our sins and that he might destroy the works of the devil. John the Apostle tells us the Lord Jesus Christ was manifested to take away our sins, that is to cleanse and pardon our sins and to destroy the works of the devil. So as we prepare for Christmas and amid all the buzz and the bother and the wonder and the weariness that this holiday season brings, we shall not lose sight of the Saviour's glorious purpose for coming, nor indeed of his evident success in coming. And as we begin this study and this series of studies today, I want to pause on that little phrase that the Lord Jesus Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. Because I think it is such a potent, such a pregnant, such a, a heavy little uh, statement by John. He, he came, he was manifested, yes, to take away our sins, but to destroy the work of the devil. And we will remember that so as not to err in our day-to-day -day appreciation of what is going on around about us in this world. If you're anything like me, we get depressed when we look at the sin that is in this world. And often when we find that sin in our own hearts and we see it evidenced all around about us and we see the hurt that it causes and the declension that there is in the values and the morals and the standards around about us. And perhaps it is that the older that we get, the more we remember better times and the worse that perception becomes. And we see the wickedness that is in the world. And I dare say that sometimes we are tempted to think that the devil is winning. We make the mistake of construing this life as a battle between the forces of good and evil, God and the devil. And we surmise that sometimes the battle goes for us, though rarely, and sometimes it's going for the enemy. And that usually depends on what the headlines and the news are or what we see is going on around about us. But that's not so. That's not so. We err if that's how we think. Don't ever think like that. It is true that there is a battle in this world. It's the battle between our flesh and our spirit. But that is not what we are talking about here today. That's the subject for another day. 
There is a battle that goes on in the believer's own heart. But let me press the point that we've just made with respect to John's comment that the Lord Jesus Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. We learned last week, and I, I hope that in our studies together, we build upon what we learn. We, as it were, lay foundations and build upon those foundations the lessons that we learn from the word of God. We learned last week that our sovereign king was received up into heaven as the victor returned home from the fight with his captives in chain. John tells us that he was manifested to destroy the works of the devil. And Mark tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ was received up into heaven. He ascended into heaven. And Paul tells us that he led captivity captive. Now I'm not going to go back over that theme again today. But on the cross, our Redeemer destroyed the works of the devil. And not only the works, but the devil himself and all his dominion and all his power. He entered the castle of the strong man and he bound the strong man. He demonstrated by his resurrection his power over death and he defeated death itself. Now you might say, well, where's the evidence for that? That's not what I see when I look around me. And I would have to say, I agree. But let us also agree on this, that we rarely see matters as they really are. Take your own soul, for example. Take your own soul. If you are a believer, your soul is clean because your sins are taken away. That was the first thing that the Lord Jesus Christ was manifested to do, to take away our sins. And the Lord Jesus Christ did that on the cross. Your soul is clear. If you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is a fact, Satan no longer has dominion over you. God looks on you as righteous and justified in his sight. He looks at you without sin. The all-knowing, all-seeing God does not see sin in his people. And we may not be able to explain that, especially when we feel the weight of our own sin and we lament our unworthiness and how weak we are and how tempted and prone to doubt and to failure and to falling. And yet it is true because the Bible says that you are sanctified, that you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 11. The sins of God's elect are the works of the devil. 
And though we are complicit through the lust and weakness of our flesh, it's the devil that puts them on us, that tempts us to them, that delights in them when we comply. Yet all the sins in us in which Satan revels are actually destroyed by Christ. They are taken away, they are born by him, they are removed, they are finished and they are made an end of by our Saviour Jesus Christ. That is the testimony of the Gospel. Now if this This work of Christ in our own soul, if this is objectively true, I'm still working on this example, if this is true in our own souls, true in God's sight, true by Christ's triumphant rising to heaven and sitting at the right hand of God, it's true whether or not we see it to be true, whether or not we feel it to be true. And that is the same as far as Christ's rule in this world. Christ rules in the hearts of his people. Christ rules in his church. He is prophet, priest and king. And Christ rules in the principalities and in the dominions, and in the courts, and in the parliaments, and in the hearts and lives of men and women in this world. It's in a different way, granted, than his rule in his own kingdom. But he rules and his dominion nevertheless, Lord of lords and King of kings. He is reigning in this world today. Even where sin abounds. In Genesis 15, there's an interesting little verse in Genesis chapter 15 verse 3. God tells us the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Now, what's he saying there? The Lord is telling his people, telling Moses back there in, 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 in Genesis, that the Amorites as a people would continue to dwell in the land of Canaan because their iniquity had not yet reached the levels that they would reach by which the cup of God's wrath and judgment would then be fittingly poured out and meted out Upon them. And so the Amorites would continue to dwell in the land of Canaan until the fullness of their iniquities had come to its completion. And there's a clue in that for us in this world today. Paul, to take another verse, speaking of the wicked, says, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. It wasn't Satan that gave them over to a reprobate mind. Satan tempts them in their reprobate state. 
Satan was the one who tempted Eve. We're going back to that in a moment. But God gives them over. He allows them. He grants them permission to pursue these ends and to do those things which are not convenient. Of others, the Apostle Paul says, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul is speaking about those who withstood him in the preaching of the gospel. And he says this of them, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So that even their opposition served its purpose that their damnation would be filled up. First Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 16. Fill up their sins always, for the wrath of God is come upon them to the uttermost. And that could be to the very last one, but it could also be to that very last degree for which their sin deserves the wrath and the judgment of God. Do you see what we're saying here? The Lord is allowing this world to continue and all the wrath and all the wickedness and all the declension that this world contains until it is filled up and the wrath of God flows out upon it. That there is yet a completion to be had. So when John tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world to take away our sin and that he might destroy the work of the devil, we are to rejoice to believe that that is true, both for our own sin personally in our own souls, where we have been cleansed from sin, and also as we see the evidence of Christ's work in this world. Peter says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Now, we know, because Christ is on the throne, because Christ has led captivity captive, because Christ is the king of kings, that Satan, though he is walking about seeking whom he might devour, is walking about on a lead. He's on a chain. And he has neither the right, nor the power, nor the permission to devour the elect of God, because we are safe in the hands of our God, and because the love of God is upon us. So that the significance of these little phrases appear more clearly when John tells us that the devil sinneth from the beginning. And John is no doubt remembering and using that little phrase, the devil sinneth from the beginning. The words of the Lord himself, which John recorded in John chapter 8 verse 44. So he recorded it in his own gospel account, although he is speaking these in his epistles later in life. He recorded in his gospel account the Lord's word to the Pharisees when the Lord said, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, 
Remember, we're going back to Genesis chapter 3 in a moment. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth, because there was no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, remember, we're going back to Genesis chapter 3. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. John is pointing us to Eden. He's pointing us to the fall to when Satan at the beginning was the liar and the murderer. He's pointing us back to Adam and Eve. So that in 1 John chapter 3 verse 8 he says, The devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. So I want today to take us back to that early, murderous, lying work of Satan as it is recounted for us in Genesis chapter 3 that we might see how comprehensive and far-reaching the plan of salvation is and how even in the earliest evidence of sin in this world and in the lives of men and women there was a gospel hope set before Adam and Eve revealing God's plan of redemption and recovery and restitution. So let us now read together Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, Neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden, in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldst not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, 
What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Amen. The Lord bless to us this reading from his word. Now, returning to our thoughts. What this passage tells us is about the fall, the disobedience of Adam and Eve, or Eve and Adam. Satan's own fall from heaven occurred sometime before this. Satan's just a created being as well. He was created in that period of the six days of creation before the Lord rested on the seventh day, with together with all the other angels uh, and that heavenly host, both the good angels and the uh, rebellious angels. So Satan's own fall had occurred some time before this. And while we're not told of uh, what it was at this stage, it's clear that the devil deviously employs the subtlety of the snake to get close to Eve. And to use the snake, perhaps its attractiveness, perhaps its, its appearance in, in some way, perhaps its beauty, to sow seeds of doubt and rebellion in her ear. Eve is enticed and seduced by the serpent. And we saw in yesterday's little note that this is a real snake. And yet it could speak, it could reason, it could deceive. It tempted Eve. It, in her own words, beguiled her. Tempted her to eat of the fruit of the tree God had expressly forbade her to do. Satan set his trap with promises of life and wisdom and the knowledge of good and evil, even divinity itself, all of which enticed first Eve and then Adam and brought them into conflict with God. Here's just a little aside, a little application, a little observation. You know, today men and women boast of their free will and their power to choose between good and evil. Adam and Eve had no original sin. Adam and Eve had no natural bias to do evil. And yet they could not resist temptation. How strong men and women today must be to be able to reach from so deep a pit of their own inherent sinfulness. What Adam and Eve could not reach from the mountain top upon which they were placed. 
We're told in Genesis 3 verse 7 that the eyes of them both were opened and they knew that they were naked. This speaks of the fact that they now know that they have been uh, 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 separated from God. They felt shame. And so they sewed fig leaves together. It was the best that they could do. They made themselves aprons. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees and amongst uh, the trees of the garden. But men and women can hide from God for only so long. And the day is coming when all men and women will stand before God as Adam and Eve were required to stand before God, waiting to hear his final and his unalterable judgment. And all the leaves of all the trees will not hide their shame. And all the good works that they have ever based their hopes upon will not save them from separation from God eternally. God's curse in judgment came upon the serpent who was condemned to go on its belly and eat dust all the days of its life and also upon the ground, the, the earth, the soil to bring forth thorns and thistles. So God placed two curses here. The curse on the serpent, the curse on the thistles or on, on the ground uh, to bring forth thistles. Did you notice that God did not curse the man Adam? The serpent and the earth were cursed for man's sake, but not man himself. God does not curse what he will also bless. There were some in Adam, seen and known by God, though yet unborn, upon whom the divine blessing rested and remained. Some who were loved of God. No divine curse would ever be their portion until one could bear it for them. Even in the midst of judgment, our loving Father remembered mercy. God had a people. He had a plan to save them from their sin, save them from their lost condition. And the man Christ Jesus, God's Son, not the man Adam, would carry that final curse. And so God sent his son in our flesh. God prepared that body for him. He sent him into this world as the God-man to bear our sin, to carry our guilt, to redeem us from that judgment. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. Galatians chapter 3 verse 13. Nor did God's curses come without hope for Adam and Eve. There were blessings here in what God spoke and said and did 
that day in the Garden of Eden. And the first blessing might be easily missed. It might not be immediately obvious to us. But it's simply this. That the Lord appeared in the garden at all and spoke to Adam and Eve. There was no need for God to do that. The sin had been committed. The nakedness and shame had been felt. That antipathy, that breach had already taken place. Now all that was left was the judgment. But God came to where Adam and Eve were and he called them out from their place of hiding. And that God so calls sinners is an undeserved blessing that we should not overlook. God the Holy Spirit seeks out unbelieving, deceived, sinful, guilty, condemned, helpless sinners to be addressed by the holy, eternal God. Let us never forget that the initial approach came from God to Adam in his helplessness. God spoke to Adam when Adam did not wish to speak to God. And the Lord Jesus Christ still speaks today in the gospel, calling sinners to examine themselves and to repent. God seeks them in their hideouts, whatever and wherever that might be. And the next blessing that we see is that God made coats of skins and clothed them. That comes a little bit later on in the passage, verse 21. But makeshift fig leaves were not going to do the job. They were inadequate. Durable garments of skin were required. And for that to be obtained, animals must be slain and blood must be spilled. And here God prefigured the atoning death of the Lord Jesus Christ and also that there would be a sacrificial system put in place. It was not the animal that had sinned, nor was it the spotless Lamb of God. And yet it was the Lord Jesus Christ who died to cover our nakedness and fit us for the presence of God. Peter again says in his little epistle, we are redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. And God's people are clothed in a righteousness which is not our own, nor indeed the skins of an animal anymore, but the holiness of God himself. For he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation, he hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. Isaiah 61 verse 10. And then God blessed Adam in a way which is truly wonderful. God gave Adam the gift of faith. Where do we see that? In Genesis chapter 3. We see it in response and reaction to God's word. God said 
in verse 15, that a seed would be born that would bruise the serpent's head. And Adam believed God. Adam now gave his wife a new name. He called her Eve, for she was to be the mother of all living. Before this moment, she was merely called woman. We see that in chapter 2, verse 23. Now, according to God's word, she would be the bearer of new life. And Adam believed God and gave his wife a new name. Faith is God's gift. And Adam and Eve possessed faith by believing God's word concerning this new life that would come forth from the woman. And by faith, both Adam and Eve are in heaven today. They deserved to die in the garden, but mercy mitigated God's anger. God looked not on the sin of the man, but on the sacrifice of his son. And Adam and Eve's faith was focused on a child yet to be born. One upon whom faith's hope is fixed. A man who would be born to crush the serpent's head. but not without grief to himself. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. There would be suffering on the part of the man, for his heel would be bruised, but the serpent's head would be crushed. Satan would be conquered. And this verse, it's sometimes called the Proto-Evangel. You don't need to remember that, but if you're interested, there you go. It's the first revelation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in the scripture. It anticipates the coming, many years hence, of the great saviour and deliverer. Here in the Garden of Eden, at the very point of the entrance of sin, is the promise of the coming of Christ. What is it John says? To take away our sins and destroy the works of the devil, who was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. John 1, 4, 1 John 4 verse 9 says, In this, and in the context it's the manifestation of the Son of God to destroy the works of the devil, in this was manifested something else as well. The love of God toward us because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Adam and Eve looked forward to a son yet to be born. We look back upon the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And this is appropriate. 
every child of faith focuses upon the same person, the God-man, Jesus Christ. I shall not forget the coming of Christ, for this is all my salvation. He shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Our Lord Jesus Christ was manifested to take away our sins and to destroy the work of the devil. May the Lord bless these thoughts to us today and encourage our hearts in them. Amen. Amen.